0: One of the neat things about Scripture, it doesn't matter what passage you're in, it is always applicable, it is always pertinent, and the problem with finding application is not with the Scriptures, it's usually with our inability to be creative and understand how God wants to speak to us. And that pertains to things as distant as what we've been discussing in the Olivet Discourse, So from the Olivet Discourse, we're trying to understand not only the times of the first century, but how that translates into applications for the time in which we live in. So this morning, there's a little word that I'm going to just, you're familiar with it, some of you, a little controversial, hopefully we'll get that far. But I think it's a a word and a concept that I think is a great blessing if you understand it correctly, even though a lot of Christians have a problem with it. And I'm gonna leave it a secret till we get to it. <laughs> so Maybe, we don't walk out on you. That's right. So you don't walk out on you have to yeah, just yeah. sit on the edge of your seat and wait till we get to that word. But I believe that it's it's a tremendous blessing to understand what God has done in terms of that that concept. So we're still in the Olivet Discourse, obviously, and in the setting, just to kind of situate you where the disciples were when they listened to Jesus Christ. They were on the Mount of Olives, top of the slide there, somewhat of an aerial picture of Jerusalem there, the old city right in the center there. Lots of uh, activity today, and certainly in the first century. So the disciples were on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus delivers this Olivet Discourse two days before his crucifixion. So he's preparing them, kind of last-minute preparations, giving them a perspective on the future. And what we have in the Olivet Discourse is Jesus' summary of end-times events. And you could view it as a summary of the entire book of Revelation, where we have a lot more detail. And in our study, we've been referring back or not back, forward to the book of Revelation, because there's detail there that Jesus just gives us little hints of. And we'll see that again in the passage. Hopefully we'll make it to verse 28, kind of an odd, difficult passage there as well. Just a couple more photographs from the Mount of Olives. The mountain hasn't changed. Maybe some of the structures are different. In fact, there probably weren't any structures in the first century. And definitely from the Mount of Olives at night, that would be Temple Mount, and the Golden Gate, where tradition says when Messiah returns, he goes through those gates. And in the first century, the disciples were admiring the structures around and the temple itself, and Jesus announced to them that that temple's going to be destroyed and not one stone left standing. And if you were a Jewish person in the first century, you would wonder when and what's going to happen. And that's the setting for the Olivet Discourse. And what he's explaining is there's going to be a period of time. Now, the disciples are not quite aware that it's going to take at least 2,000 years before all of these events take place. Now, Luke focus Luke's account on the Olivet Discourse focuses, in some portions of it, in the more immediate 70 A.D., when the temple building was actually destroyed. But much of the Alvet discourse deals with issues even beyond our time frame. So we're in the portion that deals with what's called the tribulation, and I'm hoping to complete that portion this morning, Lord willing. It's going to take your faith to see us through it. So we'll get through that. We've looked at verses 4 through 14 in this portion. Jesus describes that portion as, or at least I take it, the beginning of birth pangs. In other words, it's a terrible time, a time that is unprecedented, a time that is very, very disastrous. Many people die, a lot of natural disasters, and the first few verses there is just the beginning of this horrendous period of time. Uh, We've been looking at from verse 15 to 28, where it intensifies, and Jesus uses the little phrase, the great tribulation. And we've looked at the destructiveness of it, verses 15 through 22. In fact, we're still in that portion. I didn't quite get done with verse 22, so we'll pick up there. But I've broken that down. We see a despicable desecration in verse 15 that takes place. That sets off this last three and a half years in a very specific period of time. That there are a lot of scriptures outside of the Olivet Discourse that give us a lot of a lot more detail, particularly the Book of Revelation. And then sixteen through eighteen, Jesus says, "When this desecration takes place, get out of town. Don't go back. Get your iPhone. Don't go back. Get your jacket. Just." Get out. You're going to depart in desperation because a persecution is going to hit particularly the city of Jerusalem. And the portion that we're going to conclude here, we have a description of that devastation of the tribulation, 19 through 22. And to break that down a little bit, verse 19, the destructiveness is going to be most damaging to the most vulnerable. Verse 20, Pray that it doesn't happen in difficult seasons because you may not escape. So the difficulty of harsh seasons, the winter time particularly. Verse 21, this is the most destructive tribulation ever. And the focus last week was how unique and how destructive this period of time is. And we only got through about the middle of verse 22 where it talks about the diminishing or at least my little outline there, the diminishing of this period of time. So let's pick up in verse 22 and finish the passage here. Unless those days had been cut short. Now I mention the cutting short from uh, the perspective of all of the other passages that we've seen. It doesn't mean that there's going to be less than three and a half years. Because it's so specific in so many passages that this period of time is Daniel's 70th week that is very specific. Seven years. It's so specific, the Be- book of Revelation gives it in days, 1260 days. book of Revelation also gives it in months, 42 months. And it uses that cryptic phrase as well. Jesus doesn't use any of those. He just describes the period in general because he's given a summary. But the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel are very specific. So what it says, cut short, last week I said, I think what we have in view here, in the sovereignty of God and in his omniscience in eternity past, he limited that period of time to three and a half years, 1260 days, That's the cutting short of this period of time. Make sense? It's not that the 1,260 days are less, but this period, had it been prolonged any longer, no one would survive. And that's the point. And the emphasis is just how, how devastating this period of time is. No life would have been saved. In other words, all of humanity would have been extinguished, essentially. And I gave you some passages where we see in two major judgments combined half of the population of the world is basically destroyed and our engineer former sandia labs guy calculated out if you have about 8 billion people then obviously and it doesn't take a sandia labs engineer to divide that into two that would be four four billion people destroyed in just two judgments and then there's more to come after those. Those are described in the book of Revelation. So no life would have been saved. This is a slide from last time. Yes. Yep. Is it interesting the difference in the tenses? I mean, it's like it's this past, then also future. Is that is that right? I mean, have been, would have been, and then will be. Yeah, and it's all prophetic, so it's looking forward, but it's. It's looking at it as if they were there. in fact he's the whole Olivet discourse is presented as if the disciples were actually there so that's a good observation yeah, yeah I think there's more to what Jeremy said right that first tense unless those days had been cut short that is really speaking to God's prior decision. yes to shorten the it. intensity of that right for mm-hmm. a coming future event. yes very good very good said it much better than I did. So, no life would have been saved. And Jesus describes this period as great. The book of Revelation makes it clear that it's worldwide, in at least Revelation 3.10. But there's other passages that indicate it's global. So it's not first century. First century was local, isolated, but this period of time in the future is global. It's worldwide. And the passage says that it's never taken place, there's, it's never been a period of time in the past like it, nor will there ever be a period of time after that period of time that's described. And then we looked at the uniqueness, and some of these passages bring out not only the global aspect, but the devastating aspect and the uniqueness of this period of time. We looked at all those passages last time. And Revelation 6.8 speaks of a quarter of the population being destroyed. And then 9.18 on another judgment, a third of the remaining. And you add the two and it always ends up a half of all of the population. So that's where we got that calculation. Just a quick summary on your outline sheet. The conditions are unique. And we looked at this in a little bit of detail. This is Satan's... If you want to use the word finest hour, finest in the most diabolical sense, in the most uh, evil sense, he is confined to earth, he's cast to earth, the book of Revelation tells us. Secondly, we see man's final product, no matter how technological, advanced we may think we are, culturally there's going to be such a decline that we see what man ends up with, basically bringing himself on the verge of annihilation. Man's final product, very unique period of time. The world's final uniting, going back to Babel, where we have the first uniting of peoples. And the reason God limited at Babel people to nations is to limit evil. Because historically, you can see, when, whenever you have a totalitarian government, those are the most oppressive of all governments. So when man unites, all it does is unite sin and becomes one of the most oppressive conditions. So God has limited that. That's one of the ways that he's done it. But there's going to be a worldwide uniting during this period of time that's going to be the most oppressive of any empire that has ever been on the face of the earth. So fourthly, and this is the positive, the the ultimate salvation of the nation of Israel. This is one of the main purposes for this period of time is to bring Israel as a united people into a saving relationship with the Messiah that they missed in the first century. And they will trust in him in massive numbers. Not every single one of them, but in massive numbers. So it's Israel's ultimate salvation. Fifthly, it's God's closing judgments beginning in this period of time. God's closing judgments... There's a final one that takes place after. That's why I don't use the word final there. But he begins the process of ending this problem of evil and sin. And then sixthly, it's God's consummating work. God's consummating work where he's bringing all of his promises. He's bringing all of his covenants and beginning to set them in place to bring fulfillment to all that he said in Old Testament, and what's reiterated in the New Testament. So these are the conditions that indicate the uniqueness of this period of time. And then we end it by looking at a provision that God makes for the woman in Revelation chapter 12, which is a symbol of Israel. And in Revelation chapters 12 and 13, we have the main characters of this period of time expanded, Remember, the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter 6 all the way, you'd even include chapter 19, describes this seven-year period of time. Now, chapter 19 tells us the end of it, and it's Jesus Christ that ends this period of time. And 12 and 13 lay out the main characters of the period of time. We have a woman, and it's a symbol, and it's clearly a symbol in the passage, and the woman represents Israel. We can't make it represent what we want to. We let it represent what the Apostle John indicates from the context. There's also a dragon, and now that one is clear. In verse 9, it identifies. So there's no question who the dragon is. Remember, and the dragon is whom? Satan. Satan. He's a main character of this period of time. We have a male child. Now, I view these characters pictured more like little snapshots. And there are several little snapshots of each of these. It's almost like you have a shoebox full of photographs at home. They're not in any order. You haven't put them in an album where, you know, this is little Johnny at 5 years old, Johnny at 10 years old, Johnny 19, Johnny with tattoos and a beard, 21 over here. (laughs) (laughs) So they're just little snapshots of uh, the woman, the dragon, and the male child, and particularly the male child, we have even a reference to the ascension. So just little pictures, not in any album order, just to identify them. And, And then we have this war and wrath, 7 through 17, and it's in that context. We looked at the passage. We won't go back to it for the sake of time. But in that passage, God miraculously provides protection for the woman as she is fleeing. And I think the context of that is the same as what we have in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus says, get out of town. Jesus doesn't give us the detail, but I think this passage tells us that in a supernatural way, God makes provision for the woman or for the nation of Israel. And they will, in fact, uh, survive this period of time and we'll find out what happens after that later on in all of discourse. So just uh, kind of a timeline, and in our timeline here, we have a at the very beginning, this is a summary of this seven-year period of time, a covenant that kicks it off. Daniel is very specific and very clear. And it parallels what Jesus talks about, even though Jesus is not as specific. We have two prophets. Now, this is my analysis of the book of Revelation. Chapter 11 speaks of two prophets that are raised up during this period of time. And I think they're Elijah and Moses. They're not clearly identified, but those are probably, the details probably indicate Elijah and Moses. There's some exegetical details that seem to indicate that. I think at the very beginning, they begin to prophesy, And the main message is that Jesus is, in fact, or was, and is, the Messiah. And as a result of their prophesying, Revelation chapter 7 speaks, and and the chronology in Revelation 7 is at the very beginning, and I think an immediate response is 144,000 Jews, and it's very clear. 12,000 from each tribe of the nation of Israel. They initially trust in Jesus Christ, and they grow up. Now, they probably have a background of understanding Scripture, and now it all comes together, and it clicks. And they're prepared, and they're all over the world, they're prepared to bring about the greatest revival that the world has ever seen. And as a result of their ministry, Revelation 7 says, a multitude that no one could count from every tribe, from every nation are essentially converted. Does that make sense? So, the only bright spot of this seven-year period of time is this massive revival and the conversion of the nation of Israel. But unfortunately, there's going to be persecution of not only Israelites, but also non-Jewish people that trust in Jesus Christ. This persecution is going to result in most of those people dying. It's going to be illegal to trust in the Messiah, trust in Jesus Christ. And I think the six seals are a summary of this seven-year period. We saw some parallels in Matthew's account. The woman flees, that's in the middle. And then verse 22, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Future tense. In other words, the fulfillment, I think, of what God determined in the past. As Bill was indicating earlier. And you see a little word in there that might be troublesome in some circles? And <laughs> the elect, very controversial concept. I'm not going to, for the sake of time, I'm, not, I'm just going to introduce it to you. We'll look at it again, because it occurs again in verse 31. And when we get to verse 30, what I'd like to do... See, I've got to get you to come back also. <laughs> so in verse 31, what I'd like to do is uh, kind of expand this and talk a little bit about this whole concept or this doctrine of election. And that will be probably a more appropriate time, especially in light of what we have here. So, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Let me just introduce you to it, and then we'll come back to it. But if you study the, the words, the biblical words, and if you study them in the Old Testament, the Hebrew words that are equivalent, And if you study them in the New Testament, then you can find that it occurs in different contexts. And it seems to refer to different groups, and a particular, even, individual. And I'll expand some of this, but let me give you a real quick summary of it in the time that we have. First of all, there are several passages that refer to the nation of Israel as God, particularly in the Old Testament, as God's elect. Now, the basic meaning of the word is to choose, something that is chosen, something that is very special and is, in fact, selected out of many. And when it speaks of Israel, it's not talking about selecting in the sense that we will talk about eventually when it refers to believers in the body of Christ. I think there's a distinction. It's slightly different. These Old Testament passages, when it refers to Israel, that doesn't mean that every single Israelite is saved. And we know that clearly from Old Testament passages. We know that clearly from New Testament passages. Okay? So, the selecting here is a particular people out of many peoples. And what it refers to, a special selecting, in fact, why don't a couple of you look up, Somebody look up Deuteronomy 7. Who wants to do that one? Connie. And what about 1 Kings 3, 8? David. And Jim, why don't you get Isaiah 45, 4? And these are just a handful. These are There are several others that would fit in this category referring to Israel. And what this is, is a selecting of one nation out of many nations. Out of all of the nations. And God does this. In fact, we have the seeds of that in the Abrahamic Covenant. And it begins with the selection of one man out of the nations, and he is set apart to God, and he's given these promises, and then God enters into a covenant, and it's made into a covenant, it's called the Abrahamic Covenant, where God, in fact, is going to utilize a particular people, and he will utilize them for the rest of world history. And in the Abrahamic Covenant, we have the parameters for all the rest of world history. And some aspects of the Abrahamic Covenant have not even been fulfilled in our day. They're still reserved for the future. Okay? So, what we're speaking of here is Israel as a chosen, as an elect nation. It's not dealing with individuals per se. It's dealing with them corporately. Does that make sense? So there's a concept of the doctrine of election that is corporate. Connie, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. And by the way, this is even before they're a nation. They're in the wilderness. They're not a nation yet. They're just a people. you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. There's the word. Now, first of all, holy means set apart. You're a set-apart people. And then what does it say? A what? Chosen, or you could even translate it, an elect people, a chosen people, by God. Keep reading. A special treasure. A special treasure. Special. Keep reading. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you. And by the way, there's a lot of principles there that are also applicable to another sense of this doctrine of election that we'll talk about in terms of believers in this age. And one of them is it's not based on anything in us. Just as Israel, it's not because they're such a nice group of people. It's not because they're smarter than others. It's not because they're better than others. In fact, the point of that passage is the very opposite. Keep on. In fact, read that part again. Well, you were at least the before he loves you. And the Lord has brought you out with mighty hand, and hand. Hey, it's in his plan, in his choosing, in eternity past, not based on anything in the nation of Israel. In fact, through their history, they are continuously a rebellious people. But God has a purpose and a plan for world history, and at the heart of it is a people that he has selected out. Make sense? David, read uh, 1 Kings 3.8. As thy servants in the mystified people which thou hast chosen. Okay, the serpent is Israel. A reminder that they are chosen. A great people cannot be numbered or counted. An innumerable number. In fact, God promises Abraham that in fact they would be greater in number than what you could count the stars. And here's part of the fulfillment of that aspect of it. But notice the word chosen, referring to Israel. Isaiah 45, 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. Israel, my chosen one. I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known. Okay. A chosen nation. So uh, as a national entity, a concept, national. Connie. Are you sure that's it, Connie? That Israel yeah, read the context that it it's referring to. Yeah, it's not unusual. Well, remember, Israel is also an individual. Israel is a name. Jacob, cha- God changed his name to Israel. Yes. Check it out. Yeah, check it out. And if I'm wrong, bring it up and embarrass me next week. <laughs> All right. Somebody got First Timothy 5.21. And somebody look uh, Luke nine thirty five. Who's got uh, First Timothy? David, go ahead. Let's go ahead and do. Uh, no, you, you do Luke nine thirty five. First Timothy five twenty one. Go ahead, David. I charge thee before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect, that thou observe these things without one else. Did you catch a little phrase there? Elect whom? Angels. Angels. Does that mean that there's the possibility that angels can be saved? What? Shaking yes? yes, yes shaking no? says it again? No. No. No, here is a usage in a context that does has nothing to do with salvation. In other words, a chosen group, a chosen group that are protected. In other words, angels made a decision, and it appears that God preserved some, preserved them to make the right decision. So they are a chosen group. Isn't that a salvation? No. Salvation means that you're in danger of being destroyed, and you're saved out of that. In other words, they are preserved in a sanctified, holy state. Yeah, don't think of it. It's not salvation. You have to sin before you can be saved from sin. Jim? Deliverance, yes. And they're not delivered. That's right. What what I'm alerting you to is this concept has different category, different aspects to it. And in this case, it's a choosing in the sense of a preserving, a preserving sense. In the first sense, it's in a national sense. See that? Think in different categories. Don't let that word just force you into thinking, well, it's all the same. It's not all the same. Jim. In the sense of the way. Yes, almost. Set apart. Yes, set, set apart. apart. Right. Out of other possibilities in this case. In other words, there are some angels that departed. Some angels that fell and became demonic spirits. Okay, how about Luke 9.35? Was Jesus saved? Ah, here we go. <laughs> Who's got uh, Luke 9.35? All right. This is yes. a transfiguration. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, "This is my son, my chosen. Me listen to." Him. Same word, my chosen one, my elect one. Father is speaking, and Dennis gave us the context, the transfiguration. Here's another one that has nothing to do with the concept, necessarily, of being saved. Jesus was not saved. But he is the chosen one, and in this context, and you might see it in other contexts as well, it also has that aspect of chosen for a particular purpose, particular role, particular function, all right? He's a chosen one to accomplish a particular plan that God has. Jesus is that messianic one. Does that make sense? Jesus is a sinless one. He's not delivered from sin. He's not saved, if you will. He, in fact, is chosen for a particular purpose. So it has aspects, and you could say the same for Israel. Israel is chosen in order to be used by God for a particular function. Now, that aspect would also be true in terms of what we're going to talk about later on. Jeremy. Uh, We'd like Luke 6.13, it's like it says, and and when the day came, he called called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them. Yep. Did that be that? Yes. So those were sort of set apart for this purpose. Right. Out of these many. Out of the whole Jewish community, he selects twelve. Very good. Because they are going to serve a purpose that he's going to have. And one of them, what? Was he saved, one of them? (laughs) One of them was not. In terms of, 6.13. 6.13, 6.13. 6.13, yeah, that's another category there. Ellen? You are not in the chosen No. So the doctrine of... We'll get to that. Yeah, that's that's the sticky that's the sticky part. you got to come back in uh, a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that. <laughs> but i got to get you to come back, remember? Does anybody have Isaiah one. All right, Bob. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit on him. He will report justice to him. And if you read the context, it's messianic. It's a messianic passage also referring to Christ. Am I alerting you to kind of a bigger picture when you think of the doctrine of election? I'm hoping to do that. Jeremy is still puzzled, right? No, no, no. I just, uh, you know, the important thing to think about is it's, it's always God, it's not that it just happened like this. It's yeah, an angel's got absolutely. Him. I mean, it's God... He is the one that does the choosing in His sovereign plan for His glory, for His purposes. We'll expand that. David? Not only that, but in to set the standard. Well, in terms himself. of His Son, yes. He chose Himself. Right. Because He's the only one that could the accomplish His plan. Mm-hmm. During the Church Age, now this is the one that uh, we get tied up into all kinds of knots with. Who wants to read First Peter two nine? Connie? Colossians three twelve. Somebody want to do that one? Okay. Great. First Peter two nine. Connie, go ahead. But you are a royal priesthood, his special people that you of Okay, and who is he referring to there? Believers and it even in that context has something of a corporate aspect to it. A holy nation. So there is something of a corporate aspect in terms of the church. The church is in view there. Great. Right? Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering. Okay. Chosen of God. Where was the phrase there? Therefore, as the elect of God. Elect of God. Now he's speaking to the church at Colossae, but I think he's... Probably speaking in, in a individual sense. In other words, those that are believers within the church of Colossae, And there are several others that pertain to probably more of an individual sense. We'll get into that, alright? But this isn't referring to... This is no, no, no. This is church age yeah. believers. Yeah. See the category there on the screen? Oh, church age. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew 24. There are a particular chosen group, I believe, in the tribulation. This period of time that we're talking about. Verse 22 that we're looking at pertains to a group within a particular time frame. Why? Because the church is square. Church is gone if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Church is not on earth during the seven year period of time. Those that become believers during that period of time are not members of the church. Does that make sense? Does that confuse you? Those that trust in Jesus Christ during the tribulation are not members of the church. The church has a specific function, purpose, calling, time frame. They're believers more in an Old Testament sense, although they have more than Old Testament believers will talk some of that. Well, chapter 24-22, and we're going to see it in verse 24 again, and then we're going to look at it in verse 31, and when we get to those passages, we'll we'll expand it. Alright, so there's a provision, and I think the point here of uh, verse 22 is the tribulation period ends abruptly in order to preserve some for a particular purpose. We'll talk about that later on. And that's the cutting? Cut short? Cut short part, yeah. Abrupt. Very (laughs) good, Jeremy. Now, verses 23 through 27, and I hope to get through this, there's a deception about his arrival. Some of you are skeptical, I can tell already. (laughs) Deception about his arrival, 23 through 27, I'm kind of skeptical myself. (laughs) Then... If anyone says to you, in other words, in this dreadful, terrible, unique period of time, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, and you're looking around, where is he? In in, in other words, is he spiritually here, or what do you mean? Or, there he is, way over there, there he is, way over there. And the last part, do not believe him. And I think what the emphasis here, there are false appearances during that tribulation. Remember, there are false Christs during that time. There are false prophets during that time. There are false appearances of Messiah. And probably more so, when the time gets the most desperate, there'll be the appearance of these false messiahs. And people say, well, follow this guy. Here he is right here. Go follow that guy, he's over there. But the point here, and hopefully we'll get to it, we have a great contrast. And the contrast is going to be expanded in verses 29 through 31. We won't get that far today, obviously. But the point of this passage is the coming of the real Messiah is not going to be obscure or invisible. In other words, it's not going to be obscure or invisible. It's not going to be distant. In other words, way over there. It's not going to be distant or vague. I think that's the essence of what uh, Jesus is saying here. It's not obscure. It's not invisible. Not distant. Not vague. And the contrast to that, we'll see in a moment. So, what we have here is an emphasis on deception again. We've already seen that. Verse 4, Jesus starts out, There'll be many false Christs. Beware of false Christs false messiahs, false ways of salvation. And in verse 5 also, and also in verse 11, false teachers, false messiahs, false prophets, false teachers. So it's emphasized again in this passage. The attempt of these false messiahs in this context is to deceive primarily Jewish people that are fleeing and saying, come back to Jerusalem. Here's where the messiah is. Trip them up. Trap them. Martyr more of them. They're looking in all the wrong places. In other words, look here, look there. Here's Messiah. There he is. Looking in all the wrong places. It implies that not visible, not in the open. That's what they're implying here. Okay, second coming, however, as opposed to what we just outlined there, it's a bodily return of Jesus Christ. It's a real Return. It's visible. And we're going to see that when we get to verse 27. Bodily and visible. As opposed to, uh what did I say, vague and obscure. It'll also be very evident. Somebody won't have to point it out. He's over there. And it's going to be unmistakable. And you can already see that uh, verse 27 is kind of behind this slide there. So verse 23, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe them. There are false messiahs, false prophets, false teachers, false concepts. This period of time is full of deception. And then verse 24, For false Christ, this is the reason. False Christ, false prophets will arise and will show great signs. They will arise show great signs and wonders. It's going to be a period of miraculous events. Miracles are not only from God. Satan can reproduce miracles. In fact, the word for signs there, segia, is the same word that's used of Jesus Christ in John when it refers to the miracles of Christ. They're signs. There's also the wonders, ferrata, And in Acts 2.22, why don't you just jot that one down, but that's a reference to what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. He performed signs and wonders. Peter is reporting that in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. So all we have is counterfeit signs and counterfeit wonders during this period of time, during this tribulation period. The two witnesses... In the book of Revelation, it refers to them as performing signs and wonders. Those are authentic from God. We won't look those passages up. In fact, we've read them in the past. But the book of Revelation also refers to, and it uses those words, counterfeits. And we have them in Matthew chapter 24. Signs and wonders that are counterfeits. If you want verses for that, Revelation 13, 13 through 15. And there's going to be something of a spectacular death and resurrection of the false messiah, of the ultimate false messiah. That's in view in the Revelation passage. Seemingly come to life. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12 speaks of counterfeit signs and wonders. I'll let you look them up on your own. So at the end of verse 24, the reason and purpose for it, so as to mislead, if possible... Even the elect. Now this is not the elect of the, the body of Christ. This is the elect of those that are saved during that seven year period of time. So, so is that true? Because I mean, if we think think to God, to the apostles, uh, Judas was an elect. Yes. He was, you know, I just... I mean... Yeah, I think in this context it's referring to those that are genuine believers that God has chosen. But they can be misled. Well, it says it's possible. Yeah. And it's possible that believers fall into deception. Okay? The Revelation talks about a group of people that's sealed. Yes. speaks of the 144,000 sealed through the entire seven year period of time. The sealed people. In that context, you're referring to, yes. Revelation chapter 7. I think the elect would include the 144,000. In fact, it would. I think it would include the Jewish believers, and it would include the Gentile believers during that seven-year period of time. Make sense? Correct. Correct. So so it just seems like you're, you're going back on what you said, that here the elect are going to be people who accept Jesus eventually and like that. But before we're saying it doesn't always happen. Right, I mean, aren't well, they... what I'm saying is the concept is broader than simply individual. Right. So, well, and, and it's but in this context, it is specific to individual believers in a particular period of time. So, I don't, I don't know how we know it's believers here and not just there's people here that God has set apart for a purpose, and whether or not they end up being with Him at the end. That, that's the only question. But... Right. It's not crystal clear. But it's a conclusion based on some of the the other data in the context. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. Verse 25, behold, I have told you in advance. This is prophetic. This is scripture. God is speaking, or Jesus here in this case, revealing these things are going to take place. There's kind of an emphasis, pay attention here. Verse 25. Verse 26, so if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, kind of more claims by these false prophets, false messiahs, do not go out, or behold, he is in the inner room, we can add to our list here, the true one is not going to be obscure or invisible as they indicated, it's not going to be distant or vague, in this context, not inglorious or non-glorious, whatever the word is. Or mystical. The second coming is not mystical. It's not inglorious. It's not private. Not in the inner room. It's not hidden in an inner room. See that in the passage? But the contrast, we'll see, or do not believe them, for just as, verse 27, as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, what happens in a dark night? The lightning strikes in the east, and what happened? It, the light just kind of goes fills the whole horizon. That's the point of what he's saying there. So just as the lightning comes, this is an illustration that Jesus used. It comes from the east and flashes even to the west. You can see it in the west. So the second coming is bodily, it's visible, it's evident, it's unmistakable, and it's glorious. One of the most glorious events of all (laughs) of world history. second coming of Jesus Christ. We'll look at that in some detail when we get to 29, 30, 31 spectacular. You're not going to miss it. You don't have to go to the wilderness. You don't have to go into the inner room. You don't have to look for Messiah. In fact, everyone is going to be immediately confronted with the Messiah. It's going to be spectacular. It's also going to be public. It's not hidden. Not in the inner room. It's very public. text tells us, every eye will see him instantaneously. You won't need a an iPad to see him. It's global, not local, not in the inner room. <laughs> Great contrast here. Because when he appeared first time, he's appeared. Yes. The resurrection, the resurrected Christ was very local, it was just to a yes. relative human. Yes. And it was tiny, it wasn't Absolutely. Very good. Very good summary of the first coming. The second coming is going to be the very antithesis of that in terms of its public and glorious nature. So will the coming of the Son of Man be... Now, beginning in verse 29, we won't get there, but we've got to stop here. Verse 29 basically describes it. And in the description, it is bodily, it is visible... Uh, It is spectacular. It is glorious. It is all the things that we mentioned on that last slide there. And the last verse here, description of the disaster. Now, I won't have time to give you the details on this. We'll just read it, and then something of our introduction to verse 29. Next time, we'll look at verse 28. So we have a description of a disaster. It's kind of cryptic, and it's going to take a little time to explain, so I won't even attempt it. Let's just read it. Wherever the corpse is... There the vultures will gather. Kind of proverbial. uh, What's going on here? Well, we'll take a look at that next time, and I'll try to explain what's going on there. Closing thought. We can praise Him. This is a period of judgment. But we can praise Him because He is dealing with sin in the beginnings of its final stages. And He's going to eliminate it. This is a process of eliminating it. So we can praise him for his judgment, and in the midst of it there's grace, there's salvation. That's always the case. Who wants to close for us. Jim, go ahead. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you, Lord, that you before all things, and you all things hold together, that you have a plan, that you have a plan. And we thank this vision, Lord, that uh, shows us. We look forward to everything that goes on in this world. Amen